covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball. It's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. It is time for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. Thank you so much for being tuned in. Another week's worth of Brewers slash baseball slash labor negotiation talk for you uh, here on the podcast, although it has been a it has been an eventful last week. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. As always, housekeeping items at the top of the podcast. If you want to get in contact with me, best way to do so on Twitter, at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. And if you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and want to subscribe and leave a ranking and review and all that sort of stuff, that would be uh, fantastic. Helps the podcast be found by more and more people. And we're going to do it. We like as many people hearing it as possible. Our featured conversation this week is with Will Salmon, the Brewers beat writer from The Athletic. He will join us in just a few moments. So the last week, a very eventful week. Last Monday was the first deadline for a CBA to get worked out to avoid losing opening day. They worked deep into the night, Monday night, and we started getting reports that they were close. Eh, those reports might not have been as correct as we thought they were at the moment. And throughout this entire thing, there is posturing from each side. And I don't think there has been any more posturing and any more maybe a little bit of spin in there than what happened on that night where a lot of people got very excited about the possibility of a deal getting worked out. We have since learned they weren't as close as maybe we thought they were. They took steps in the backward direction on Tuesday. At that point, Rob Manfred canceled the first week of the season. Manfred, he's not the greatest public speaker in the history of mankind, and that is saying it uh, gently and nicely because his tone during his press conference was unfortunate when he's kind of smiling and he kind of made a joke here and there. It's just... It's not a good look. Like I, I'm a big believer that optics matter, right? Optics do matter. How something looks matters. And it was disappointing on what was truly a solemn day for the sport of baseball to see the commissioner baseball with a smile on his face when he was making the announcement that the first uh, week of the season was going to be canceled. And it's just, it. I, I don't even know. You got to know better. You just got to know better. That's the thing. You you have to know better. You have to you have to read the room. You have to know who your audience is. And I think that's why there's a lot. I'm not a Rob Manfred fan. If you've listened to this podcast or listened to me on the radio, you know that. I'm not a Rob Manfred fan. It just shows how out of touch he is that he could have that demeanor as that press conference is taking place. So the first week of the season gets wiped out. Since then, eh. That's that's nothing. If anything, it's gone in a backwards direction. There were some informal conversations that took place, and then uh, the two sides got together, just the negotiators. That did not seem to go that well, although that didn't go horribly poorly either. Uh, at that point, the Major League Baseball Players Association officially responded to what was that final offer that they had received on Tuesday, 
and that response was given to Major League Baseball on Sunday, the day that we are recording this podcast. So this is, uh, as I'm recording this, it is 4.28 p.m. Central Time uh, on Sunday afternoon as I'm recording it. Doing a little early this week. I broadcast uh, UW Green Bay women's basketball, and I've got to drive to Indianapolis tonight. So we're just getting the podcast out of the way just a little bit earlier. But uh, anyways, uh, according to The Athletic um, and a statement that was issued by one of the negotiators for Major League Baseball, the the response to it was, quote, we were hoping to see some movement in our direction to give us additional flexibility and get a deal done quickly. The Players Association chose, chose to come back to us with a proposal that was worse than Monday night and was not designed to move the process forward. On some issues, they even went backwards. Simply put, we are deadlocked. We will try to figure out how to respond but nothing in this proposal makes it easy. I said earlier, there's always posturing. That is not a true, fully truthful statement because from what we have learned, there was some give from the players, especially when it came to uh, the commissioner being able to issue rule changes. Previously, you have to give a one-year notice for on-field rule changes uh, in this at least for some rule changes, players are giving the commissioner a 45-day uh, advance warning on it. So what that essentially means is things like banning the shift and the pitch clock could be in Major League Baseball for 2023. So after this upcoming season, assuming there is an upcoming season. So that's a little bit of a give. Also, players did reportedly reduce the amount of money that they wanted in the pre-arbitration pool by another $5 million. Where they did not budge was the threshold for uh, the luxury tax. And that continues to be the biggest issue. Uh, There are other big issues. There are other things that can hold this up. But the luxury tax continues to be the biggest issue. If they were smart, they would just find a way to get that part done. You know, there was some early on... Like when you go back to December, because if you remember, right before the lockout was instituted by the owners, there were some conversations that happened uh, in December. And I remember they talked about trying to kind of go through some of the uh, smaller items. And the thought process was get the easy stuff done, and then that allows you to only focus on the hard stuff. At this point, I think you got to reverse that. Only work on the hard stuff. Only work on, you know, get get the CBT figured out and get that done and have that set in stone and have it not connected to anything else. That's the one of the most frustrating things about this negotiation is there's all these different categories of things. And, well, if we're going to give you this from category A, well, then you're going to give us this from category D. And it all, everything gets mangled together and connected. And we're not giving you this unless we get this, yada, yada, yada. You just got to get some of these issues just worked out on their own. And, and maybe that's a utopian perspective. Maybe that's not possible. But one of the problems here is every time it feels like they're moving in a forward direction, well, something happens and something from one of these categories goes in the wrong direction and then that impacts something from the other category. Like, I'm dumbing it down. This is a really simplistic view. I get it. I get it. But it's frustrating. 
And I don't, I've talked about this before. When I think about negotiation, I think about, okay, one side wants X amount of dollars. The other side wants Y amount of dollars. Now negotiate to the middle. But with this, this is a, a much more complicated version of negotiation where it's not about meeting in the middle on issues. It's about accepting something for this issue in exchange for something connected to another issue. And I, I, I just, oof. the big thing for me is I, I want to see what owners do once they get to a point we're about the first month of the season, and I hope we don't get to this point. It'd be great if a deal would get done before we ever reach this point. But it's been talked about a lot. I'm going to talk about it with Will Salmon in just a few moments when he joins us. That 25-game marker of missed games is the key number because after 25 missed games, that's when teams have to start rebating back to regional sports networks the TV money. Now, it's not a, from what I understand... Um, and, and this comes from, um, there's a journalist out there, his name's Maury Brown. You should follow him on Twitter. He does business of sports and he does baseball and he's been on every radio station uh, in, the United, in the entire country over the course of the last uh, week and a half, it seems, because he is an expert on this. From what I understand based off reading him, when you start rebating back the money to the regional sports networks, it's not just cutting a single check you rebate over an extended period of time. So it's not an immediate loss, but it's an extended loss. They're still getting rebated from the 60-game season. Teams had to do that that year. They had to return some of the money to regional sports networks, and that is a process that is still ongoing. So at 25 games lost, that's when you have to start rebating some of the money back to regional sports networks. I will be very curious to see, and this is going to be a storyline that we're talking about a lot over the next couple podcasts, over the next two weeks, does the position of the owners all of a sudden miraculously change as we're coming up on the deadline to avoid the 25 games, or do they continue to be, as the statement from Major League Baseball that was issued on Sunday, do they continue to be deadlocked? Because that's key. That's key for knowing if there's going to be an extended time without baseball this year, if all of a sudden the owners start really giving in in order to start the season as close to the point where they would not miss much more than 25 games, if the owners start to give in at that point, that says something. If they don't start to give in at that point, all bets are off on how long this negotiation lockout labor situation will continue on. All right, let's get to this week's featured conversation. Very happy to uh, welcome on to uh, the podcast. He is Will Salmon. You can follow him on Twitter at W-I-L-L-S-A-M-M-O-N. He covers the Brewers for The Athletic. Always enjoy being able to talk to Will. Will, thanks so much for uh, taking a little bit of time with us this week. How are you? Good, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Always enjoy it. Uh, we'll get to some Brewers-specific stuff here in just a moment, but let me start you off with the events of the last week. Uh, at one point, it looked like the two sides, the owners and the players, were getting close to a deal. Maybe they never got as close as it was being reported that they were. 
There's been some more uh, informal conversations. Major League Baseball players sent out a proposal on Sunday, but it didn't have major changes in terms of the uh, the threshold for the luxury tax. Like, what's your takeaway from just everything? And there's been a lot, but everything that's happened in this last week. One thing that jumps out to me is just how set the players are with their wants in this in this thing and that's and that's a good thing from a union perspective of course uh it just makes it very difficult to strike a deal because it seems like the owners are the ones with um i guess a more advantageous situation because they're they they don't necessarily make a lot of their money in april uh whereas the players of course are not going to get paid from their teams unless they are playing and so they need those games in April if they want to get paid. Um, but yet here they are willing to take a stand on this. Um, and we see that with their proposal as of, I guess it was Sunday, the latest one from the MLBPA. Um, it, it, they're, they're not letting up on what they want, which is to, you know, raise uh, the floor for guys who are, who are making the minimum, um, increase that number. And um, have that CBT go higher as far as the threshold goes. So, yeah, it's just it's not something for that baseball fans want to hear. Um, I understand that, um, but this was a lockout that was mandated by the league, and I just it, it is interesting to see that the players are set and they're firmly their their stance is firm on this. It seems um, there's a lot of unison as well and what makes that interesting to me though is that like i just said earlier about the fact that it's the owners who have the leverage in all this it seems as far as you know when they make their money and and how much money they're making something that's not being talked about at all right now and i feel like it should be unless i'm totally off on this when these negotiations got started the, the there was a report that players would not go for the expanded playoff if games were canceled and or if they don't get paid for their full 162. And the press conference from the players' side after the uh, cancellation of opening day, uh, they said that they fully intend on trying to get players their full 162-game salaries. Do you feel like the players are probably going to hold that over the heads of the owners trying to get full salaries for this year and not allowing the expanded playoff unless they get that? I think they're going to make a very strong move to get that to get that money for those games lost for sure. Um, I think it would be an indictment on the union if it didn't. <laughs> I think that like you have to try that, and that's a lot of what we saw in 2020 as well, where they just couldn't come to a deal on on the amount of games played and the amount of money it would be. And we may see a lot of that in 2022 right now. So it's like so now in addition of what they're calling these core economic topics. Like we discussed, Matt, with um, the raising the salaries for the minimum players, um, CBT, those core economic topics, as they're called. In addition to those, now I would assume that later on or whenever we get closer to a deal, it'll be a lot about, okay, well, what about this year and this and this year's salaries um, with the games that are crossed off the schedule as of now? Um, so I, I think you outlined it very well with the fact that you have the owners who at Rob Manfred's press conference, he was asked about uh, pay uh, for these games. And he said that something along the lines of it was his stance that they would not be. 
And then the Players Association, I think, it, yeah, it, it's what you would expect a powerful union, or really any union, honestly, to, to make that fight for, for that because the, it, this was a, a league-mandated lockout. Um, and it was not the players, like, they didn't agree to cancel these games. They didn't come to an agreement to, I guess, um, not have that on the table as an option. But it's not like they're the ones pushing. It's not like they're on strike, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. No, it's a great point because you have the if tomorrow the owners ended the lockout and said we're going to play under the last deal, the players are, are, are – I don't think the players are going to strike at that point. I would assume the players would then report. You would think, yeah. I'm not, you know, I can't, I can't, I wouldn't want to make a sweeping statement like that because you never, you never know. But I, I think that that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um. La- last thing on on the labor negotiation, then we'll get into more Brewer stuff. the The big number is twenty five games because after twenty five games, that's when teams have to start rebating money back to the regional sports networks for broadcast lost. Is that a is that a key number for you? Like, do you think that the owners are going to sit here and, no pun intended, play hardball until they get to kind of that deadline of twenty five games, and then at that moment, maybe they might start to soften their stance at all? I think it's a, I think it's a date to keep in mind because of those because of that reason. Yeah, um, would that be what pushes them over? You know, pushes the needle a little bit in, in making a deal here? It could be. It could be. Um, for me, it kind of depends on like how much money that is because I feel like even so, like we're talking about like just the beginning of that process still. So like you would still be like in a very early stage. Um, it's not like it would it would be like okay now this is two months of it or or like you know, two full months of it. It would really be at a very very early stage um, as far as the twenty five games go. So I just look at the amount of money that they make. Uh, projection-wise, like, say, in the playoffs or closer to the playoffs versus April and May. And uh, I'm not very optimistic with it, but it, it could be. It, it definitely could be just because, like, who would want to continue to lose money with it? Um, but, it, it, you know, part of me, like, set, looks at some of these numbers, and, um, yes, on, on, like, one or two, they're a little bit closer, I guess, like the CBT. Um, is maybe like eight million dollars or eight? I mean, excuse me, eighteen million dollars off around those lines, according to like the last proposal. Doesn't sound like much, um, but then the other numbers for certain things are very far apart. Yeah. Um. So it's it's really hard to to suggest one way or the other. Spring training is going on for players who are not on the forty man roster. So minor league guys, a number of prospects, but probably the the guys who get hurt the most in all of this are the young prospects who are on the 40-man roster, who you know weren't even going to be big league players this upcoming season, but were on the 40-man roster for, for protection reasons. Those guys are probably the guys who get hurt more than anything else in all this. But when you were down at spring training, was it a weird feeling with no major league spring training going on? Oh uh, Yeah, totally. I, I think like the sights and sounds of baseball makes it a little bit easier because it's, after all, baseball is baseball. But yeah, and you're not really used to walking, or at least I'm not used to walking around that facility wondering who's who. <laughs> it's pretty clear, like even the guys who are non-roster invitees, like maybe there's one or two that are that you don't really recognize because they just are new to the team and maybe they had bounced around a little bit, whatever the case may be. 
but it's not you know upwards of 20 guys where you're like man i wish they were wearing a jersey because <laughs> yeah. like it's it, i have no idea i mean these are not guys that i cover every day i i you know, I just don't know the guy in single A as well as I do Willie Adamas <laughs> for obvious reasons. So, yeah, that, that makes it a little bit peculiar. And we're just not used to seeing the minor leaguers, like, uh, occupy the entire space, which is a, a small silver lining, I suppose, for them, is that they, they do get that opportunity to, to do that. Um, not that that's a big deal at all, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, but um, a little thing there. But... Yeah, there's there's that. It, it is weird. It is weird. Um, there's probably no better way to put it. I think the point that you made earlier, uh, just to make it clear, like, you know, honestly, like the the Brewers don't have too many guys. Like, who are like, they're not as if they're like the Guardians, where like Cleveland put like so many dudes on their forty man, yeah. like right before that deadline, that were prospects and they didn't want to lose, or whatever. And really, that's how the Brewers ended up with um, J.C. McGee, one of their relievers on their forty man. The new guys, um, but the Brewers, on the other hand, they they have a you know Mario Feliciano for me is, is one that that is really hindered by this because he's a guy who had the injury, the shoulder injury, didn't get a lot of time in AAA, um, and now there's going to be a AAA season, yet he's not in minor league camp, and so that's very weird. And this is a guy who there is no chance of Mario Feliciano making the for making the Brewers opening day roster, unless maybe. Um, Somebody got hurt, and then even then, you know, more bias Pedro Severino and Brett Sullivan. So those are your three major league catchers, and then Feliciano maybe at some point late in the year, if he was doing well, and if there was an injury or something like that, then sure. But this was a guy who was ticketed for AAA Nashville, and who is not even able to be at the facility with the rest of the minor leaguers preparing for the minor league season. Yeah, and losing a, a not a year. I mean, we don't know how long this is going to go, but let's go worst case scenario and say we lose the season. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. But if it was a worst case scenario, situations like that could be really, really bad long term for some of these prospects. Yeah, it sure could. Uh, I mean, I would say even like right now is a very crummy situation for the guy. Probably, I'm sure he's doing his best to work out and. Um, keep himself ready, but I mean, I remember talking to him a couple of months ago, and, and he was really happy about the idea of actually moving from Puerto Rico to Arizona this offseason. And part of the reason, part of the rationale for him was to be closer to the facility for because he wanted to stay healthy and he wanted to be in the Brewers' care. And now he, now he can't do that. So it's like you know, you make this move, and it's better for his. It was better at the moment for his career but obviously it's like you know you kind of wonder and again i'm sure he's doing everything that he can do to get ready at this point so it's not like he's just sitting there like a potato but he's he's not in the situation that he probably thought he would be at this point i mean it's first week almost the second week of march and like i said this is a guy ticketed for triple a anyway who's not able to practice with the triple a team were you able to enjoy it all? Just uh, yeah, as it, from a journalistic perspective, were you able to enjoy finding those stories that on a normal year you wouldn't find? Yeah, I think it's a good challenge. Um, personally, um, I think that like you could probably make that challenge. Like it's a challenge in every spring training anyway for me, or at least it has been. Um, so like it would have been a good challenge in the major league level too, but for the minor league side, there are some like really cool stories that I probably wouldn't have been able to pursue. Or if I if I did, it, 
you know, I, I would have been very, very um, distracted, I guess, while doing it, which isn't good for anybody. Uh, but one in particular, you know, Lucas Ersig really opened up about you know, his path to um, getting sober. And that's a very serious issue that I didn't really know a whole lot about. I had heard some things about him and his teammates in Biloxi celebrating his one year of being sober last year, but I didn't really know too much. Like I didn't really know the backstory and it was one of those things that was kind of something that people, other people didn't want to talk about because it's Lucas Ersig's life and not theirs. Mm -hmm. And I totally understand that. And so to have the opportunity to have a real conversation with him about that, where he felt comfortable because it was something that was after say 15 minutes of conversation about him switching from being an infield prospect to a pitcher prospect, pretty innocuous baseball stuff. And then after a while, and just for context purposes, he was talking with myself, Adam McAlvey and Todd Rosiak, um, two people who have been on the beat longer than I have, of course, who have covered Lucic longer longer than me. Um, but still three people that he was familiar, familiar with. And I guess like after that, like he's able to kind of like let his guard down. And, um, you know, maybe we don't talk to Lucas during during um, a normal spring training um probably maybe maybe not uh, because it is interesting nonetheless that he's made the transition from infield to pitcher so perhaps we would have but um it, that part is, is definitely rewarding because you get to still have these conversations and i just look back and then like i just say to myself you know i'm really fortunate in, in my life at least like i'm not a ball player i'm not uh, a major league coach or anything like that i can still proceed with my life you know i can still proceed and and yes, it's definitely different, but um, I'm still able to do my job a little bit, whereas other people who are stadium workers, who are concession workers, that sort of thing, it just really stinks. You mentioned the Lucas Ersic story, and it's really, I always remind people that baseball players are real people. Like, that's why when I'm doing my postgame show, I don't like callers. In fact, I, I cut them off. If they if they call a player trash or something like that, that's it. I, they, I, I don't let them on. They can say they played poorly, they they played like trash, but they are not trash. You know, that's kind of the the differentiators that I have when I'm doing a post game. And I, I just I feel like so many times fans look at athletes as just robots and not human beings. And of everything, the Lucas Ersig story shows as much you know fallibility and real life stuff and you talk about the alcoholism and he hasn't spoken with his mother for years because she was an alcoholic and he's been trying to get sober and there's still those demons that are there and he and his fiance are going to try to maybe start an organization that can help players who have you know suicidal thought like there's just so much real world real life human being stuff and I think it is important that those stories do get out there. If an athlete is comfortable enough, as Ersig was, to talk about it, I think it's powerful for, for those stories to get out there. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It, it really is. Um, and I'm with you on that. I, I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in fanhood, or maybe not easy is the right word, but you lose yourself a little bit sometimes. And that's part of sports. Like, if you want to lose part of it, like, you want to you know, have a, an out of reality. Like that's why we watch movies. That's why we read books like that. That's why we're fans. Um, but there it's, yeah, I think you, you nailed it there. Like there, these are people, uh, and we don't know their stories. Like even as journalists, I I always remind myself, like 
I really don't know. <laughs> like as much like time as I spend with maybe somebody for like a story or like for just seeing them every day at the clubhouse, I really don't know. I really don't know what this what this person goes through on a daily basis, um, what their lives are like after the game. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, because they have their own lives and, and so do I. Um, and and I, I always try to do that in my job. Um, does it stop me from like, you know, like Lucas Erschig, I guess, is a really good example. Um, you know, he was a guy who you had on lists, I guess, like top whatever list for a little while. And then after a while, you're like, yeah, no, absolutely not. His performance is not there. And um, I guess that's kind of like just a long-winded way of saying that, like, yes, it, it always comes back to performance on the field. Um, but the point is, is to kind of separate the two and, and to also understand that, like, there's also a human being on the other side. I haven't had you on since your conversation and your your story about Devin Williams, and that came out in early January, and I'm guessing the vast majority of uh, people who are listening to this podcast have, have probably already read it. There was the Devin Williams story from last year was such a, again, it's another one that just shows the human element of everything, and then for the winning, basically the runs that in, ended the Brewers' season for those to happen in an eighth inning. Now I think Josh Hader is still probably pitching in that eighth inning one way or another because Craig Council after the game said you, you don't want to lose that game and not use Hader. So, uh, but it's if you're going, you know, the eighth inning is Williams' inning, and, and Williams wasn't there, and they lose it kind of in, in the eighth inning. I, I thought it was interesting. What what was the tone like for you when you sat down and spoke with him? Was he was he you know eager to talk to you was it an uncomfortable thing like kind of go behind the scenes on it a little bit sure yeah i think first he was pretty remorseful of the situation understanding that this was something that he did that he had control over um like in other words like it wasn't like a something where he had no control over the situation where like it was something that just happened or whatever um this was something that could have been avoided is what I'm trying to say. Like it was, avo- it was avoidable. Is, is the point? I shouldn't say that he had control, but the point is that he, it was an avoidable situation, right? Um, and so, therefore, I think there was like a lot of remorse from him, at least from my perspective, in talking with him. Uh, I think there was a lot of responsibility that really shone through throughout the conversation. I don't think you sit down with somebody months after something happens and talk about it all over again, unless you are taking responsibility for it. And you're eager to accept the consequences and accept um, blame and try to share your story, not necessarily for like forgiveness or for people to say like, oh, wow, look at him or that sort of thing, but just to kind of turn the page in a healthy way. And I, I think that's, that's what he was doing or not necessarily doing like with me per se, but just a part of that journey toward doing that because he was already at a pretty good space. It seemed mentally when I was talking with him, like, again, who am I to say I, I'm not with the man. Um, but just from hearing him speak and from talking with other people, you know, I got the impression that he was in a better space. Um, and, and he was able to sort of understand like, okay, that was not a good experience for me. Um, that just, it stunk. It was it was horrible to deal with. Uh, but is it something that's 
going to follow me like the rest of my life or is it something that I'm going to try to move on from, uh, learn from and prove people wrong or prove people that I can do this and that, you know, you can trust me to, to, to be a good person and to put the team first and, and that kind of thing over and over and over again. And that was kind of one of his quotes in that story too. And so I think that like he, he was, um, he was willing to do it. Uh, it was something that I, I came to, uh, to him about. It wasn't something like he came to me and said like, Hey, you know, I want to do that. That type of thing would uh, honestly have rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> that would have been a little bit weird for me. Uh, just from, you know, uh, uh, from a professional uh, standpoint and like an ethical thing, I'd be like, Oh, you know, that's kind of weird for somebody to like want to like use me as like a vehicle or something like that. It was, it was me reaching out to him, asking him like, Hey, you know, this is something interesting to me. Uh, because from my perspective, if I was in your shoes, I don't know how I would feel about returning to the clubhouse after that. And so I just kind of want to get your take on this and, and see like what it's been like and, and understand like what happened and maybe more backstory as to what, what's the process like going forward. And he shared a lot. And I think one of the things that I will remember for a while is just the time when I, I think it was like shortly afterward when Hunter Strickland had texted him a reliever for the Brewers. He's a free agent now, of course, but a veteran guy who actually he himself had, had punched something. I forget what it was. Um, and I think he broke his hand as well. It wasn't a postseason situation, but he was actually the closer. I believe it was the giants. And so he was a prominent player, a prominent reliever, and the same thing happened. And he had reached out to Devin once um, and kind of just explained that and said to more or less not let it define you kind of thing and to just do the best you can to move forward because otherwise you're not going to do yourself any favors. And then so that was kind of a cool thing to learn, like those little things about the process along the way. And so I was pretty thankful for him to share that and to share his story from his perspective because I do think people – understood a little bit more about the situation and found that he was pretty revealing and pretty vulnerable in the piece. And that to me indicates that he's again, responsible for his actions and he's sincere about moving forward. Yeah. No, it was really good. Where just out of curiosity, because I was that one of your most read stories ever on the athletic. I got to think a lot of people had eyes on that one. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think it was just because, you know, nobody had, he, he kind of kept a low profile too. Yeah. I, I, you know, he, he wasn't somebody that was trying to, you know, he wasn't all in like PR mode of trying to like, you know, do his image over or anything like that. And he kind of just put his head down and wanted to work and wanted to get healthy too, by the way, you know, it's like, you know, the guy broke his arm, so broke his hand, excuse me. And so he wanted to make sure that was healthy. And so he just put his head down, did the work, and and shut his mouth, frankly, um, until well, you know I reached out to him. So yeah, that's that probably was pretty well read for that. Um, you know, thankfully, like there there are people reading stories still about baseball within a lockout. So <laughs> that's that's been a nice thing, I guess. But yeah, definitely um, something that people read, and I think people were appreciative of, of Devin for, for opening up that way. 
Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Well, Will, I'm appreciative of you taking uh, some time with us. Encourage people, if you're not subscribed to The Athletic, you need to be subscribed to uh, The Athletic, uh, especially right now, not only because of all of Will's stuff, but from a national standpoint and the way they are covering uh, the lockout right now, uh, there's probably nobody better, no entity out there doing it better than The Athletic. Plus, you got uh, just great local coverage of uh, not just the Brewers, but uh, all the local teams as well. Follow Will on Twitter, at Will Salmon. Will, thanks so much for your time and look forward to doing this again. Hopefully, next time we're talking we're talking about actual baseball being played yeah that would be preferred but regardless always a pleasure talking with you matt thanks for having me on that is will salmon joining us here on brewers externings the podcast powered by wtmj mobile my appreciation to him for joining us thanks to you for being tuned in hopefully this time next week we will have better news to get to as uh, the negotiations will continue on but As I am recording this on Sunday, late afternoon, early evening, whatever you consider, a little after 4.30. Uh, It doesn't look good. doesn't look good, unfortunately. Let's all hope that there's a breakthrough. Rob Manford did say it at one point. He was right. He he may not be right a lot, but he was right when he said any labor negotiation is one breakthrough away from kind of, you know, being able to press the fast-forward button. And... That's what we have to hope for. Have to hope for some sort of breakthrough at some point in the relatively near future. Thanks so much for being tuned in. We'll talk to you next week for another edition of Brewers Extra Needs, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to a home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.